0: Today as uh, Darren mentioned we're starting uh, the first on a kind of a five week sweep uh, just thinking about and talking together about about relationships uh, in general uh, but obviously uh, shaping it in some ways and relationships and marriage relationships between men and women and and and, and so on um, I today want to talk. Um, from Genesis 1 and 2 about kind of what God had in mind when he invented uh, men and women. Uh, Next week, we'll talk about the nature of intimacy, uh, what it is and and why it matters and how God intends it to be a transformative uh, reality. Uh, Third week, we'll talk about how things went sideways uh, and what the implications of that are for us uh, even to this day. And how, how it broke. Uh, fourth week, Darren will talk about how God plans in Christ to restore us to the kinds of things for which relationships were created in the first place. And then the fifth week, uh, we'll just kind of work through some practical things. What does it look like? Uh, what do relationships look like in singleness? How do we, how do we honor uh, uh, relationships between men and women uh, in, in general? And, and uh, how can we be then a transformative presence in culture that is, is built for relationship, it is clear that um, as we that, you know the, the news of this week kind of just rolls over us and it's hard for us. Um, even though you know you may not have been personally involved in, in the shooting in, in Seal Beach, um, the fact of the, the the fact of that is is that that ripples out to us, doesn't it? You can't you can't not stop for a moment. And, and and just hiccup for a moment, right? On when that level of violence, uh, which is common so many times in so many other places of the world, but kind of comes home, um, and and especially in, in a battle over 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 a child, a custody battle, that went sideways. And in that moment, if I'm not mistaken, that child lost one, and then two parents, one. to to death and the other to uh, incarceration, who knows what what comes. But in addition to that, how many others of lives were damaged and impacted by that, right? The the people who were so-called collateral damage, just there. And how that works itself out in their circles of relationships. But also how it works itself out in our relationships going backwards. Parents lost children that day. And children lost parents that day. And, and, and it, it's just, it, I think it's significant as we head into that, that we just stop for a moment and think about how we are built to be interrelated. It would be tragic for an event like that to have taken place and us to have not noticed. Not to pay attention. And then to realize that events like that, like I said, take place in one form or another all over the world. Most of which we don't notice. Um, and and, and I, I keep thinking that that can't be how, how it's supposed to be. So what we'd like to do is take the next two weeks and talk about how it's supposed to be. Um, some of you have heard me walk through some of this material before. We're going to do it in a slightly different way. This is going to be a different kind of a sermonic structure than we normally do. Um, it's going to be more, hopefully, interactive. Uh, if you feel like asking questions, if I have have not made something as clear as you think it needs to be, press in if you want to push back on some things. Uh, I'm happy for you to do that, um, and, and we'll just work through this together. It's pretty pretty dense material, uh, and we're going to be moving fairly quickly, but do feel free to uh, um, kind of push, push into this a little bit more, because uh, what we want to talk about I'll go ahead with the first one, um, uh, if you would, please, uh, is uh, what God had in mind uh, when he invented men and women. Uh, and so we're going to look at Genesis one and two. We're going to move quickly through chunks of that. Uh, but the first one is going to be uh, Genesis one twenty six through 28. And you can see it uh, there. And I don't like I said, I don't usually use use the, the, the slides of the PowerPoint as exclusively extensively as I am this morning. But principally, I want you to be able to track along and follow it. Apologize for those of you uh, on this side here where you're going to be uh, getting some chiropractic uh, uh, taken this afternoon. But anyway, then God said, let us make humankind in our image and according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over uh, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, in those Three verses, right at the kind of the tail end of the creation story, if you're following in Genesis at all, this is on day six, at the last part of day six. You get the answer to the two fundamental questions of human existence Who are we and why are we here? Who are we and why are we here? And the answer, according to this text, is Who are we? We are the image of God. Why are we here? We are here to care for the planet, we are here to be responsible stewards of the gift that God has given us in this creation. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go, go forward on it. In terms of the relationships, you'll notice that every time I use this language so far today, I've, I've said we. And that is because if you look at this text, you'll notice that image of God is not individual. It is communal. It is collective. So let's look at the next one, and you can see how this looks. We're taking the chunk in the center there, and we're looking at a... a a Hebrew poem uh, form here, Hebrew wisdom literature. And just before we get into this, let me just bore you with a a, a little bit of grammar here. Hebrew English poetry works principally by by rhythm and rhyme. There's there's meter and so on and so forth involved. Hebrew poetry also has rhythm to it, but instead of rhyme, it uses parallelisms. So a, a parallelism, there's two different kinds. One is a synonymous parallelism in which the thought of the first line is repeated in the second without much change. The second type of uh, parallelism is didactic or advancing parallelism, in which the thought of the first line is repeated and intensified or changed slightly in the second line. So sometimes, as in this verse, you've got all two kind, both kinds of parallelism, and uh, you'll notice the first two lines are, are synonymous God created humankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. That's not simply to state the obvious again. That's a way of Hebrew wisdom, a way of Hebrew poetry. So that when we get to the third line, we recognize that's the punchline. That's the point that He's trying to make. male and female. He created them. So as we think through this, I want you to notice, let's go to the next one. And you can see by my feeble attempt at PowerPoint. I hate PowerPoint, but I thought I might as well give it a shot this morning just to show you that I really do know how to do this. And you can clearly tell that I don't. But anyway, uh, you see in the italics there, God created humankind. He created them. He created them. Those are the parallel statements in all three lines. Look at the parallel statements in the next line, though. In his own image, in the image of God, what is the image of God parallel to? Male and female. What's the point? The image of God is humanity. The entire human race, male, female, in collaborative, cooperative relationships of mutuality, that is what it takes to represent God well on the planet. Image of God is not characteristics, uh, temperament, makeup, personality. Image of God is identity. That is why, uh, for example, when when we did our studies on the the ten words from from Exodus there, uh, one one of the words is, don't make any graven image. Why? Because God already has an image, namely, humanity. We are the image of God who represent him, and the we is very important. Please notice, then, that the image is not individual. I am not created in the image of God. You are not created to be the image of God. We, together, in collaborative, cooperative relationship, are the image of God, right? So the implications of that are pretty significant. Boil it down for a moment just to the microcosm of a marriage, which is kind of where we're going to be talking about this, but but to, to underline this. Part of what he's saying here is that if, in a marriage or in any kind of relationship of intimacy—which is not necessarily a marriage, but a relationship of closeness—let's, um, yeah, let's leave it there for now. Uh, if one of the members of that relationship doesn't show up, then the capacity of that relationship to be the image of God is compromised. That makes sense? So as we look across the planet, as we look across the, even the room here, our ability to be the image of God to represent him well requires that all of us be fully ourselves. Because to the degree that I am not myself, to the degree that I don't show up, to that degree not only my but your capacity to be part of the image of God is compromised. That makes sense? So that means, secondarily, that one of the things that we probably should consider is how we can devote ourselves to the full flourishing of the others around us. How we can devote ourselves to them becoming as fully themselves as they can possibly be. Because we want them to flourish so that, as part of the image of God, we all can flourish. That's kind of the, 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 the goal on this. So as we look through here, we recognize that image is first identity. We are the image of God. Then it is function. It is what we do. We care for the rest of creation on earth. And this is, this is an important one. If anybody ever questions whether there is a connection between being a disciple, a follower of Jesus and environmentalism, and, and concern about the planet, and concern about environmental issues. This is it. That's what we're here for. We are, we, we are here to care for, to steward, and to extend God's care over the entire planet. That has a number of implications. That doesn't mean we all become tree huggers, or we all sign up for the Sierra Club. Uh, but it does mean that in the sphere of influence that we have, We are responsible to care for the care for the package the the package of earth, if you will, that we have say over, and we seek to extend God's say over the rest of the planet. That's what we mean when we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done. We want your influence, your say God, to be extended over the rest of the planet. Does that make sense? How are we doing so far? Are we all right? Uh, th- this will get denser here in a minute, but, but I, I just need you to, to sit with that for a second. All right, let's go on to the next one. So, uh, to be who we are and to do what we do are here to do requires mutuality. It requires community. So, what that little blue thing says is we are created for what? Created for the image of God and created for mutuality. Please notice as well that individuality flourishes Only in the context of community. You will not ever get to community by emphasizing individuality. The orchestra plays best when it plays as an orchestra with each individual part playing fully themselves. You don't get an orchestra with the disparate parts playing hoping somebody can corral them together. They need to tune their ears to what the instruments beside and behind are playing. Does that make sense? In the same thing, you think about uh, you think about uh, members of a family or you think about members of a community in some way uh, who are outrageously individual. Everybody got somebody in mind? Great uncle, whatever? Why are they enabled to be that individual? It's because they're anchored to a family that gives them place, space, and definition. Otherwise, they're just out there free outliers, right? So, 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 so it, is, it is community that enables individuality and, in fact, requires it because I need you as part of the community. I need you to be fully yourself in order for me to be part of the image of God the way God has created me to be. So we're built. This is what God intended when He built people in the first place mutuality, and capacity for the image of God. But there's one more thing that he intended in this passage. And to get at that, I would like you to go back with me to the first chapter. Go ahead to the next slide. Uh, Where we have to learn from God what it means to be His image. What does it mean for us to represent Him well on the planet? And then we go to this. I've just selected four of them, and you recognize the language from the first chapter, the end of regularly, at the end of creative days, what does God say? He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good and so on. It, these are just four selections. What, does, what this means is really important to where we're going to be going in the next few weeks. Uh, and so go ahead. Good means, very simply, it works. It's not a moral description as opposed to bad all it, uh, or as opposed to evil. It's just a description that says it works. So when God sees the plants and the animals, when God sees vegetation, the way the planet works, the way the tides come in and out, the way the sun, the moon, he says it's good. In other words, it works. Specifically, what he means by this is that it has a form that perfectly serves its function. The purpose for which it was created and the form in which it was created are ideally suited to one another So that it doesn't need a regular input, so to speak. It works. It just operates. It functions. Do you follow me? It is released, in other words, with capacity to be itself. So, kind produces after kind. Apple trees produce apples which have seeds which when fall to the ground which germinate and produce Apples, that would be the right answer. So so, 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 as we're moving through this, uh, apple trees don't produce pears. Puppies don't produce kittens. Things work after their kind. Do, do you see what he's after there? By the way, you might be interested to know as well that the Hebrew word that is translated good is the same word that's translated elsewhere, beauty. Please understand how radically that shifts Our understanding of beauty as compared to the Western view that most of us have grown up believing. What does beauty mean from a godly perspective, according to this text, means simply this. It works. It has almost nothing to do with how you compare to another person. In fact, nothing to do with how you compare to another person. Just imagine how liberating that might be to a twelve or thirteen or fourteen year old girl who is just beginning to understand that beauty is something that she will have to wrestle with her entire life unless she gets this right because we live in a culture that says of beauty that yours is either a either exists or doesn't exist to the degree that you can form to an external standard by which we as a society measure beauty. Does that make sense? And here God is saying is, no, you exist. Therefore, you're beautiful. Your beauty is incomparable. And as soon as you begin to compare it, you diminish it. As soon as you begin to say, I'm not tall enough or, or, or the right weight or the right whatever, you begin to lose your own beauty because you are giving it away to things to which you are comparing yourself. Does that, does that make sense? Anyway, that's, that's kind of secondary, but I think it's an important thing for us to understand when it comes to the, under, the nature of what God intended in terms, in terms of beauty. So when God says again, it is good, it means it works, and He empowers, He releases it uh, to be itself. God does not continually exercise authority over it, he releases it to function as it was created to be. So that leads us to the third characteristic of uh, Genesis 1 relationships. They are built for empowerment. They are built for empowerment. Now, this is the, for me, this is a, a, an important dimension because we struggle with power a lot in our, in, as human beings. Let me just say we are built for power. That is what it means for us to be the image of God. Power is not the problem. What we do with the power we have, that's the problem. And what are we supposed to do with the power we have? We're supposed to empower others. We're supposed to care for the planet. Do you see? And if we do that, then we're functioning as the image of God. So we're built for two things. We're built for submission. And we're built for power. We're built for submission to God. And we're built for um, uh, empowerment of others. Because you'll notice... I don't know, uh, Miguel, shoot it to the next one. See if I remember what I did here next. No, I didn't. So go back to the other one. Sorry. Um, This is another reason why I don't like working with PowerPoint. I can't remember what I did. Um, So so, uh, as you think through that passage of Scripture again, please notice over whom or what were persons not given dominion, not given rulership. Does that question make sense? When we go back to the Genesis uh, Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28, over whom or what were persons not given dominion? They were not given dominion over other persons, and we were not given dominion over God. So we are to be in relationships of submission and empowerment with those. Now, this is very important. According to this text, men are not to exercise authority over women. Big people are not to exercise authority over small people. Persons of a certain race are not expected or not anticipated or not to exercise authority over persons of another race. Why? Because to the degree that we exercise authority over other people, both those people and us are diminished in our capacity to be the image of God. that make sense we are not built for those kinds of relationships we are built for what mutual collaborative cooperative communal relationship in which we recognize the unique gifts of persons has nothing almost at all to do with authority or power over it simply has to do with form following function that doesn't mean there aren't there are leaders Excuse me, it doesn't mean there aren't leaders. It means, however, that leaders are not about power over. Leaders are about persons in whom is recognized a gift to serve the community who are no better than anybody else and not regarded as such, but who serve as a, in a function that is not about over, but is about service. This is why servant leadership, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, is so critical. Does that make sense? Anybody have any questions so far? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what? You, everybody hear what Kevin says. Uh, the the text, verse twenty six says, "Let us make humankind to be our image." And the question is, what does the S refer to? Uh, what you've got here is is a particular issue of Hebrew grammar. How many love grammar? Yes. Thank you. What it means is the the word for God here. And those of you who are versed or whose heart language is another other than English, because English doesn't do this. But Spanish does. French does. Latin does. um, Most of the Romance languages do. Where where nouns have number as well as gender and case number is the, the Hebrew word for God is Elohim and it is a plural noun. It doesn't mean there's more than one. It's just that the form of the noun is plural. Does that make sense? So what kind of a pronoun has to refer to a plural noun? A plural pronoun has to refer to a plural noun. So that's where the us comes from. Now, a lot of us say, well, that must be proof of Trinity. No, Trinity shows up in verse 2, 1 and 2 of Genesis, where you have the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. We have the spokes. God said you have the word that is spoken and you have the spirit that enables the effectiveness of the word. It's a whole other thing, but I love talking about this stuff. So, so. but but does that does that make sense? So back on here, the, the, the fact that male and female are required to image God tells us something about the nature of God. So again, let me underline one more time. Males are not the image of God. Females are not the image of God. A male is not the... A female, not the... Males and females in collaborative, cooperative relationship. That is the image of God. Make sense? So, uh, so that's that's Genesis chapter 1. Let's move on to chapter 2 here. Second story of creation, this is going to take us in slightly different directions. and It's going to help us to understand where where we're going. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper that is suitable or that corresponds to him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper that was suitable or that corresponded to him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. The Hebrew here is Ish Shah, because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew is Ish. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I want to unpack this here. So, let's go back to the, to the previous one, if you would. And you'll notice here, we be, excuse me, begin at verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So, what you've got here is the human being is these two components. And we'll unpack this next week. But these two components, uh, physical, natural. Uh, Material and spiritual, supernatural, immaterial. And those two things together, matter and spirit, are what make a living being. So we are not animals. We are not angels. We are human beings. You with me? And that has some unique implications. We are built to live in the thin space between the material and the spiritual realm. So we have conversation in both directions if we're paying attention we are built uh, for, for that kind of kind of uh, uh, life and flowing out of those those two um, are, are some other dimensions of, of the personhood so we have material or physical we have uh, supernatural or spiritual so physical and spiritual and then flowing out of that are emotional social and intellectual so, five dimensions of what it means to be a person. Keep that in mind for next week if you, if you come back. You never know. Um, so, anyway, then, it, then we go in, and, and you'll notice here in verse 18, in, in, in that space in between is the Garden of Eden and, and all of that good stuff. So, 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now based on what our conversation was here a few minutes ago, what is the problem? It doesn't work for the man to be alone. Not good, again, is not a moral statement. It's a statement of function. It doesn't work. It is non-functional for the man to remain in isolation. The solution, I will make him a helper that corresponds to him. And by the way, while this is obviously in some measure referring, because this passage is primarily talking about marriage and the nature of relationship between men and women, uh, it is a mistake to limit this to procreation. It's not about having babies, although it is about that. It's about much more than that. It is something that is, when not work is used here, what God is saying is it is functionally a dead end for the man to be alone. Not just in terms of having children, but in terms of his very existence. We are not built to be in isolation. No man is an island. if You can use that, that poem, right? So, so what he's saying here is we need to make him, I need to make him a helper uh, that corresponds to or is suitable for him. Uh, I'm, I keep switching suitable and correspondence because the Hebrew word is an interesting word. That has both elements built into it. That is, we need to make a helper that corresponds to, that is similar to him, that is like him, but that isn't like him. The same, but different in order for this to work. That's what the Hebrew language is behind there. Now, here's the problem with English, even though it's an accurate translation. How many of you read helper and think like assistant or or prop or support? Right. Those are the kinds of or hamburger helper. We go right to right to that. In other words, something that just kind of kind of helps the boy over the edge. Right. Just takes just gets him to functionality. Right. Here's the problem with that. This word uh, helper is the Hebrew word etzer. It occurs 20 times in the Old Testament of those 20 times. Two of them are in this passage, one that we're just looking at now. Okay, So 18 more times in the rest of the Old Testament, of those 18 times, 17 of them refer to God as the etzer, as the helper. So whatever else help or helper means, it cannot mean assistant. It cannot mean junior partner. It cannot mean um, uh, prop. It cannot even mean executive assistant. It means some being that is fundamentally essential for the existence and function of this being. You, you with me? We need to make him a helper, someone that, is function, that helps him, that enables him, that, 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 that creates the environment within which he can function. And it needs to be like him, but not like him, different from him. Okay? So that's, 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 that's the experiment class. So, what's attempt number one? What's the first thing God does as a way to solve this problem? He makes the animals. You'll notice how it follows. I will make him a helper that corresponds to him. So, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And when he does that, what happens next? This is the audience participation portion of the service. He brings them to the man, right, and... He names them. And then the conclusion is reached. There was found for the man, there was, for the man, there was not found a helper that corresponded or that's suitable to him. Why not? Huh? It wasn't enough like him as indicated by the fact that First of all, they are, they are not like Him enough in the spiritual material realm. Good. What else? What, what's the indicator, though, that He uses, Kevin? He has dominion or authority over them as indicated by the fact that He names them. Sit with this for a minute. If a man can exercise authority or dominion over another being, that being is not suitable for him. You with me? So as soon as authority or dominion or power creep into the relationship between a person and another person, those persons are no longer suitable for each other. If in a marriage, for example, a husband begins to exercise authority or dominion over his wife, she is disabled as a suitable partner for him. Because it requires of her that she be... Like him, but different. You with me? Because this is what God intended. It's not what we live in now, but it's what he wants us to get back to. You with me? Okay, so as we look through this, uh, let's go to the next one. Uh, so, uh, you know, attempt number one, fail. With me? Now we get to this second one. What does God do now? You with me? So he takes, and, and here's another translational tweak on this. Uh, where the, you see where the, because we've got this as part of our imagery that God removed a rib. And I've, I've, I've had whole classes try and count to see if there's one missing. You know, if the women have one extra than the man does. Truth is, you've got the same number on both sides. Here's what helps on this. The word translated rib, while accurately translated rib, is more often than not translated side. Side. So what does God remove? He removes a side. Closes up the flesh at that point and forms a woman from the side which He had taken from the man. Now what do we have? Two permanently incomplete halves needing another to be one. You see what He's up to here? The same, but different. Different. So that when he sees her, what does he say? This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is me, but she shall be called woman, Ishshah, because she was taken out of man. It's not a naming, it's a calling, an identification. This is what she is, not what I am requiring her to be. Do you see? And please notice uh, another grammar lesson. In the Romance languages, gender, male, female, neuter, is signaled by usually suffix, sometimes by prefix or infix. In Hebrew, it's signaled by suffix. So the suffix for woman, you'll notice the same word, right? Ish in both cases. The only thing that makes the word different is the suffix, shah. Ish, ish shah, woman, ish, man. So here is me, but Feminine. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, me, but not me. Viva la difference. Okay? Why? Well, look at what he says. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, you might be interested to know that this is, the whole, this is the only verse in the whole second chapter that is not poetic. Moses is is playing the poet here in chapter 2 and his wonderful story and God playing in the clay and forming a man and all of this wonderful poetry going on. And then in this verse, he just flat steps out of his role as, as a narrator and says, now look, you people, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother, cleaves to his wife, and the two of them become one flesh. And then he steps back into the role of the poet for the last verse. What is he saying here? He's saying that oneness is impossible if differentiation has not taken place. Differentiation is our modern word, sociological word. But it means leaving before cleaving. Does that make sense? In other words, if and and the reason women aren't included in this is because in the Hebrew culture that was assumed. But it wasn't assumed that men would leave. So, what was end up ending up happening, and you see this over and over in the Old Testament, which is not something God approves of, but it does occur, where a woman would leave her family of origin and would simply join her husband's family of origin and be absorbed into, this, into the family system. And Moses is saying, mm, This isn't going to work. This is good. He needs to meet her having left the family of origin, right? How many of you know folks who have not left home but who have nonetheless gotten married and that creates problems? Leaving home here, by the way, doesn't always mean moving out. You can leave home without moving out, although, frankly, in North America, that's really, really hard to do. It means you need to become your whole person physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially and intellectually independent of family of origin, So that you can join together in a relationship of intimacy with another whole person who has individuated from their family of origin and the two of you can become one. Failure to do that creates a um, kind of a um, a, a, a relationship that mutates and doesn't work very well. How are you doing? Okay. So and the last verse, uh, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And while that's a description of their physical reality... Moses is saying something else to us here. He's saying that they were built for a relationship of intimacy, to know and to be known. Nakedness here means they knew each other and were known by each other fully and there was no shame, there was no pretense, there was no hiding in that relationship. They were built for intimacy. And next week we'll talk about the five areas of intimacy in which we are built. But the point that I wanted to make in this is that it does not work for a person to be in isolation outside of relationship of intimacy with another person. Now, every time I use that word intimacy in a modern culture, what do we hear? Almost immediately we hear sex. It is, um, I, I wish there were another word that had been used, but intimacy is still the best word to use. The truth is, sexual intimacy is only one tiny part of the intimacy that we are built to share with other persons. It's not an unimportant part. It's an incredibly powerful part. That is why God restricts sexual intimacy to one relationship. And that is a relationship that has been built on and established on the foundation of five other intimacies and has been framed by covenant. Not contract. Covenant. We'll talk about that next week. Otherwise, sexual intimacy is of such enormous power that it will damage and destroy the capacity for intimacy in the other five areas. Does that make sense? Uh, to the degree, by the way, if you're interested in this, if you want to damage intimacy for your, in your marriage, sleep with your husband or wife before you marry them. Just that act alone will create pressure on intimacy in these other five areas that disables moving forward. We can talk about that next week if you want to. Or not. Um, Now, what does this mean for persons who are not married? Same thing. Because intimacy is not sexual, persons who are not married need other persons with whom they can be in relationships of intimacy every bit as much as persons who are married do. In fact, I will argue that people who are married need other relationships of intimacy. Maybe not at the same level, clearly, as that protected by covenant, sexual intimacy. But men need other men with whom they are close, with whom they are intimate, who know them. Women need other women with whom they are close and who know them. Otherwise, the full weight of relational intimacy is placed on a marriage and there is no marriage on earth that has the capacity to carry the full weight of the intimacy needs of a whole person but we're not supposed to you had a question back there oh sure sure do you want to take a couple of minutes on this okay he just has and those of you who don't just i know it's 12:33 don't panic um, but anyway, uh, yeah, um, what happens? We're built for, for relationships of intimacy in these five areas. The primary ones, and you'll get this in more detail next week, are social and intellectual. Those are the friendship intimacies that will sustain us in relationship for 50 or 60 years. with me? That is why in an early in a, in a relationship... In a dating relationship, the primary function of a dating relationship is to build social and intellectual intimacy, so that I can trust you with my heart, emotional intimacy. If I do an end run around social and intellectual intimacy, and become too emotionally, um, uh, yeah, and become either too emotionally intimate or more specifically too spiritually intimate. Or too physically intimate before that foundation is laid, I'm starting to live in the second story of the house before the basement's built. And my capacity for intimacy in those levels is compromised because I have a false intimacy produced by sexuality. And in fact, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who has been sleeping with his girlfriend for a while and and has for almost a year been recognizing we're drifting apart, we're drifting apart, we're drifting apart, but I can't let her go. Why not? Because the false intimacy of sex before before they built the... makes it almost impossible for them to say, I don't even like this person. We can't talk about things that are of importance to us. We don't like really hanging out. I don't like how she treats me. You see? But all that gets put aside. Red flags flying everywhere. All of it gets put aside because we have the false intimacy that's produced at this level before it has any foundation. You with me? Now, that's pretty much next week's sermon. So, um, you, can, you can avoid that. Just send your money, though. Send, send. No. No. Uh, so, so let's go on to this last one. And you see that the five characteristics of a Genesis 1-2 relationship, image of God, mutuality, empowerment, oneness, and intimacy. That's what we're built for. That's what God desires for us in relationships. Does that make sense? Uh, and, and, and so as we, as we think through this, I want you to, I, I tried to figure out how to get out of this sermon um, in, in terms of response, and I don't have a good way to do it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take about three minutes. It's all we're going to do today. But I want, you to, I want you to begin to pray for a restoration, either in your own life, and then as we, as we think about our city so damaged and shattered just by the events of this week, for a restoration of a Genesis 1-2 pattern of relationships. Can you do that? Let's just take two or three minutes, maybe groups of a couple or three if you want to do that. Uh, and, and pray for each other for a restoration of a Genesis 1-2 reality, and then let's pray for our city. We desperately need relationships like this, not like the ones we've chosen. All right? Let's take a minute and do, do that. And Pete's just going to cover it for us uh, with, with some uh, music.